Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. I'm Jody Elrod, Managing Editor of EP Lab Digest. In this episode, we share a discussion with physician assistant William Cho and nurse practitioner Monique Young on the benefits of advanced practice clinician-led care for atrial fibrillation. Hi, my name is William Cho. I've been an electrophysiology PA for over 13 years. I initially started my career in New York City at Lenox Hill Hospital. I spent a short stint at New York Methodist Hospital before moving back home to Salt Lake City about 10 years ago. I currently work at the University of Utah where I serve as the APC section lead in electrophysiology. And I also have a little bit wider role kind of in helping manage all the PAs and NPs in cardiology as well. I'm Monique Young. I'm an advanced acute care nurse practitioner. I've been in advanced practice for 13 years, which two and a half of those now has now been in electrophysiology. My former employer was a general cardiologist with interventional and have been working for the University of Tulane and also take the lead as the advanced practice coordinator of six now attending electrophysiologists and one other advanced practice nurse practitioner as well. Thank you for joining us today. I think we'll dive into our first topic here, which is uh, benefits of PA and NP-led care for atrial fibrillation. You know, I think AFib recurrences can be rather unpredictable, you know, as, as we know in clinical practice. And, you know, I hate to say it, but physicians are not always, you know, as readily available compared to their APC counterparts as they may be tied up in procedures, rounding on the inpatient side or meetings of some sort. So I think, uh, you know, PAs and MPs can, they, they certainly serve as an extension of the physician um, and can improve access to healthcare. I think most of all, PAs and NPs can help reduce the time to treatment, you know, as well as reduce ER visits, particularly, particularly during the AFib blanking period, where a lot of kind of unpredictable sort of um, things can happen. You know, patients can, you know, sort of get freaked out about, you know, maybe chest pain related pericarditis, some oozing at the groin site, or, or you know, even as simple as uh, recurrent AFib, which is not totally uncommon, but, you know, for the uneducated patient, you know, they, they may be in a total panic. Um, and I think that's kind of where we can step in to reduce that time to treatment so that they feel reassured and, and taken care of. I agree. The partnership between the physician and the APCs is crucial to keeping patients out of the ER. My one statement is, is I, when I see my patients is I don't want you in the ER. And if I send you to the ER, you need to be there. And the educational portion and the relationships that APCs have with their patients as well is very vital to the transitions during the blanking period because, you know, we go in there, we cause inflammation, not us, but the the procedures themselves. And I think if we can send reassurance to patients who have also blockages prior, they feel chest pain, they get very concerned that, am I having a heart attack? So the education and the preparation pre-case, post-case is very crucial to educate these patients. And the time that we can take, which a lot to us to explain how you, you may feel like you worked out too hard and you're not having a heart attack um, and being readily available for these patients makes their journey throughout the procedure much more more comforting. And I think we as APCs, that's our niche. 
that is what we do. We, you know, the physicians are there to do their, they can then focus on what is the next best treatment? What is the next best process for these patients? One thing we do is research and we'll be in at the university and, and myself being through a university track. We want to say, is every ablation worth it? The same needed? And that's where we go with this, as well as we don't want to jam up the ERs with something that we can see in clinic and know what to do with it. Because if not, the patient goes in, they're going to add labs, they're going to do medicines. And with rising cost of healthcare, it's cheaper to, to treat them in a clinic than an ER setting. Well, uh, why don't we move on to our next topic, factors in managing the risk of bleeding in AFib patients such as use of shared decision-making and medication adherence. So this is another thing that I think education comes in with. Um, and I encounter this every time, not every time, when patients, especially that the watchmans or these left um, appendage occluded devices have come out. And again, the rising cost of medical care, the patients have to be involved in their care. And the more you engage them, their family, and their providers, because when I left and transitioned from what I call a non-EP world, but the cardiology world and came into the electrophysiology world, one of my attendings there was like, you know, you have such a great relationship with your patients. And when you're in the electrophysiology world, you're getting these patients like in, in an ER kind of setting, they're kind of coming in, going out. So my point of that is, is that we have a big referral base that comes into our practice that is not always everyday seen or everyday conversing. So you have a provider sending us a patient saying, okay, they need an AFib ablation or possibly an AFib ablation. They can't be on any coagulants. You have to make this shared decision-making. Do you, some is a clear-cut case. They've had major bleeds. This is what you need and we have to educate with them. We, we as electrophysiology practices can't make a decision by ourselves. So there's a lot of communication, collaboration between the APCs of electrophysiology as well as the general cardiologists or their APCs on their end and their staff. There's paperwork that needs to be filled out, registries that need to be kept up, all of this in the shared decision-making. You know, it's interesting. We get a lot of referrals for watchmen in patients who simply just don't want to take a blood thinner. So, you know, we, we have these shared decision-making conversations. You know, some patients just don't qualify for a watchman, but, you know, I think we get a lot of patients that uh, are very active skiing or, you know, cycling on a very high level. And for that reason, they don't want to take a blood thinner. And these patients oftentimes kind of inquire about a watchman, but you know, in these patients that should be on a blood thinner according to guidelines, but don't want to be, we, we use a shared decision-making tool. You know, the, the Mayo Clinic website has a, a great one where it kind of asks you all the CHAS-BAS questions, and then it calculates a, an annual stroke risk. Uh, there, You can even calculate a, a five-year predicted uh, stroke risk. And then it also compares someone who's taken a blood thinner versus not taking a blood thinner. Um, and so it kind of gives the patient two different perspectives. And then, you know, you discuss that with the patient. And, you know, if we, we kind of move forward in that direction, uh, we want our patients to do what they want to do. So I think having this shared decision-making conversation is very important. Yeah, it, the tools definitely help explain to the patients because they're like, I don't want, you know, even your Chad's vas, the low Chad's vas, the ones and twos that really don't. And I had one this week 
and I've had multiple conversations with the gentleman um, regarding that he didn't need an anticoagulant, but, you know, and his stroke risk based upon his CHAS VAS was less than 1% to 1.9. And he still waxes and wanes and vacillates between, do I take it? Do I not take it? And you can't make a decision, you know, either you stay on it or that you get off of it. But, you know, and I, you lay out all this stuff of information, such as you've said with the, the has bled to the Chad's VAS score, because I'm sure you have had patients with a Chad's VAS zero that unfortunately I have had a stroke and this was in my old practice. Um, didn't, didn't require one, but there's no guarantees. So moving on to our, our next topic, uh, how can PAs and NPs help with staffing challenges? You know, I think PAs and NPs can be very versatile. You know, we can be providers in clinic. We can help with follow-up items, you know, such as answering patient questions or, you know, getting back to the patients with test results, et cetera. If trained, we can interrogate pacemakers, defibrillators. We can assist in the EP lab. We can take, you know, night and weekend call. But, you know, I think most importantly, going back to our first point, you know, we can, you know, act as a, an extension of the physician and improve access to patient care because the physician's not always going to be, you know, available to see a patient or call a patient back. So I think PAs and NPs can definitely relieve stress and open up throughput in the, the clinical setting. We have a lot of uh, support staff at the University of Utah. We have six attendings and we have seven PAs and NPs. And then we have two RNs that also help with the follow-up work and a plethora of medical assistance. And so I really feel like the APC role there kind of serves as a bridge you know, between the physician and the rest of the support staff. And it just kind of turns into a well-oiled machine once, you know, you kind of get used to the, the physician style practice. What what have your experiences been, Monique? No, I agree. We definitely are the extension and we're the, we're the bridge or we're the connection between the patient and the physician. You know, the physicians are in the hospital, either rounding, doing procedures. And again, they definitely rely on us to bring everything together, um, to gather all the pertinent stuff. Where's that monitor? Where's the EKG? Because, you know, we need to see this. And as far as, you know, in the sense of staffing, you're right. And it has a multitude of levels. It has the physician, the APCs to either LPNs or RNs, and then medical assistants to feel those calls of, hey, this patient's not feeling well, and to train the staff to say, okay, how escalated this needs to be and does the patient need to come in? So as far as um, staff and challenges, we're still building our team. And I think that leads into that next thing of burnout. I think if you have a good understaff, like staff under you, that can, I call bounce and understand what the next step is and, and to think one step ahead. And I think that's where the APCs come in. And I think if you can educate everyone that's underneath you, hey, this is what I need and have a good open communication between your whole team, because the electrophysiology world is not just a physician, not just an APC, not just a nurse, MA, or a front desk person. You're relying on all of this to make a team. And it's a very much a team approach. So to avoid burnout from any level of your staff is to have delineated roles, responsibilities, and teach each team member what is, I don't know if expected of them or what we can want going forward. I always teach my team, Will, what if this was you calling an office? What, what if it was you calling this office for your mom, your dad? 
give that same care back. And I think that's where one, the APCs come in, but also the staff underneath. And I always tell my patients, we may sound like we're cavalier about doing these procedures. We understand they're very complicated or high level procedures that we do every day with our providers. And so we may walk into a room and be like, hey, you need an ablation. Turn that roll and put yourself in that chair. And someone coming into you and telling you your 80 something year old mother needs an ablation. So I always try to educate my staff on that as well. Yeah, that's that's a good segue into our next topic, which is managing burnout as an APC. You know, as, as you had kind of mentioned, you know, we, we have a large APC staff at the University of Utah. And I will admit that it has been nice because it allows some flexibility between the APCs, PAs and NPs. You know, if somebody has to take vacation or, you know, somebody suddenly out of the office, uh, we can all kind of flex and cover for each other. So I think from that standpoint, having a larger APC staff is great. Another thing that we've done is, you know, with our ends, we've kind of uh, protocolized things and created care pathways. So for instance, you know, if you have a patient with AFib calling in, you know, we have a list of things that our MAs or the RNs will ask the patient, you know, like, when did you go into AFib? What are your current AFib medications, symptoms, you know, recent ablation or cardioversion? And then they send us a message and then we get back to them and they relay our message onto the patient. So I think that that saves a lot of time. We also like to really educate our patients during, you know, these clinic visits. So, you know, you might have, you know, Mr. X who does, you know, maybe pretty well on his flecainide, but maybe require the cardio version every once in a while. You know, if, if we educate him, you know, and say, hey, you know, if, if at the onset of AFib, you can, you know, maybe take an extra dose of flecainide to try to help convert you, you know, I think that would provide the patient a little bit of, you know, reassurance of knowing what to do and not to panic, not to go to the ER, you know, if he's feeling like he can tolerate it. And then, you know, if he converts back on his own, you know, it just kind of saves another another encounter that may not totally have been necessary. And I think, you know, one, one thing that's been huge for me is um, just getting your notes done in clinic, not going home with notes. I like to write brief notes. If I have anything, you know, real specific to write, it's all, you know, down in the plan. So I, I think that's, that's a huge factor because I feel like once you get behind on your notes, everything else just kind of seems to blow up a little bit. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you just have to realize, um, you know, you can only do, you know, what you can do and, you know, you got to take care of yourself because you still have to be there for the patients. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a 50-50 deal with the notes. <laughs> sometimes I'm successful and sometimes it does take a little while, but in the sense of, and I, I like that statement that you have to take care of yourself. I always say, if you go into work and feel like it's a job, then, you know, you have to love what you do. You can make all the money in the world. However, you have to enjoy it because if not, it reflects within your patient care, within the, the office and the environment tends to feel it. So you have to take care of yourself and you have to have outlets. And I think that that helps decrease the amount of burnout is to enjoy what you're doing know you're making a difference. And like you said, have the ability to have a team support behind you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us today. That concludes our session and hope to see you guys next time. As well. Thank you guys for joining us and um, hope y'all enjoy the Western AFib. We appreciate you guys um, greatly as the APCs of the electrophysiology world. We'd like to thank our participants for joining us today. For more information about EP Lab Digest, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening.